Hello and welcome to Vodapod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 702. I'm Jim McDowell and with me, my traditional co-host, Rich Jowett, all the way from the UK. Rich, how are things post-vacation for you? Well, post-vacation, Jim, uh, well, good evening, first of all, to you and all the listeners. Uh, post-vacation, things are pretty crazy, to be honest with you. I'm questioning why I even bother going on holiday, to be honest, because you come back to so much stuff to sort out. You kind of pretty much forget that you had a holiday and you feel more tired after two days back than you did before you left. But there you go. Hey-ho. It was lovely to be in France for a week. Very nice uh, little vacation down in the, the Champagne region of France, quite close to Magny-Cours, actually. I saw a couple of... Um, uh road signposts for Nevers, which is the town that's kind of close by to Manicor. And of course, World Superbike is there in a few weeks' time. So I've kind of sussed out the geography of it all now. So that might be another trip. Uh, not this year. Um a bit too close this year, but uh, possibly next year, because I'd like to go and see World Superbike at Manicor, I must say. I must admit, I had a small little vacation as I went to Pittsburgh for the Moto America yep. race. Looking forward to hearing about that. Yep. So we'll cover all that good stuff too. But first, let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping, folks. Uh, if you like this show, could you kindly go to where you download the show from and leave a review of the show? That would be greatly appreciated. That would really help us out. And if you really, really like the show, if you could make a donation to us to help the show keep going, you can go to our website, www.motopodcast.com. On the right-hand side are links for PayPal and Patreon donations. Every little bit helps us to get to the races, to get content, to have server space, it makes the wheels go around for the show. We greatly appreciate it. With that, Rich, I think we will start with the news. Yeah, lots of news. Oh, yeah. I do. What do? Should we just get the big one out of the way first and just hammer that to death? Because you know, you I was, was going to say, can we get this done within an hour? <laughs> That's going to be the question. <laughs> it's going to be, guys. You know what we're going to talk about. The first thing off. <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> MotoGP announced on Saturday in Austria that we would have sprint races at every round for the 2023 season. I personally have so many questions that I don't think they could all possibly be answered. But let's get your thoughts on it first, Rich, before I unload on everybody. Well, oh golly. Okay. So... Uh, on reflection and after a few nights sleep, I think perhaps my position on this might have softened a little bit. My initial reaction was, why does MotoGP copy everything that Formula One does? Although it must be said that there is the precedent within World Superbike and British Superbike, for that matter, for the second, third sprint type race format, certainly in World Superbike, that is the case. But Dorna does have this kind of slightly troubling habit of Wherever Formula One goes, it, it tries to follow. So I'm thinking of MotoGP Unlimited as a TV series ex expedition, which was equally badly launched in terms of the messaging at the front end. And I think that's obviously a problem here that we're going to get onto. As I say, I've slept on it a little bit. And I suppose my position might have altered a little bit in the sense that, as many other people have commented, you know, FP4... This tended to be a bit of a bore fest, really, I've, I, I think. I mean, I tend to watch it, but you have this sort of situation where riders don't really want to push it too hard because they're about to go out and qualify. So it's one of those sessions that's a little bit kind of, for me, it's a bit take it or leave it. So I think if, you know, if they get 
as they're going to do. They're going to get rid of FP4 and replace it with a a race. Then I think, well, do I want to see racing rather than qualifying or practice? Well, yes, I suppose I do. But I do also subscribe to this concern that are we devaluing what is the premier sport on two wheels by just throwing in a lot more races? Obviously, there's the whole argument around the level of risk that riders will take. Uh, not so many people can score points. So are they really going to push their luck too hard on the Saturday and risk what might happen on the Sunday? So, that you know, as you said, Jim, there are so many questions and concerns that fly out of this. It's hard to sort of capture it all in one go. I, personally, I would prefer, as I've said before, and I know people have disagreed with me on this, and that's fine because this is, you know, a subjective thing, but I would rather see less practising in the lead-up to the main race on the Sunday rather than what they're doing now. But I think, you know, they are obviously trying to address this issue that across the Friday and the Saturday, there's perhaps not enough to really involve fans and particularly the TV audience, which has been declining quite dramatically and concerningly over the last few years, particularly, and it's hard not to draw the parallel, that this has happened at a time when Formula One has sort of leapt forward with media, uh, Liberty Media involved and then bringing in social media in a much more aggressive way, bringing on a lot more young fans, and particularly female fans, I would add, as well. So, you know, chops to Dorna for trying to do something different, but, you know, we're going to get on to how they announced this and the fact that the riders seem to have been taken by surprise on it, which is, from my point of view, unforgivable, really. So I'll, I'll stop ranting on or rambling on at this point because I'm interested to see what you got to say because we could literally talk about this for hours. Yeah, I... When we talk about trying to wrap this up succinctly, I will give that <laughs> honor of succinctness to one Mr. Garish Veet, who summed yeah. it up in this <laughs> bad idea. I have nothing more to add. Gary, I am on board that train with you. Uh, this smacks of bad idea upon bad idea upon bad idea for me. I, man, uh, one, the, the big questions I have is you now have taken a let's just use the number 20 for argument's sake. 20 races in a season has now become 40 races in a season. Mm. You have a problem of they've never told us what the length of the sprint race is. Is it half the distance of the race that was ran? So it was 28 laps at Austria this weekend. Does that mean the sprint's 14? Or is it only 10? Is it 10 everywhere? Is it is it a moving number? We don't know. Well, uh, I the think next... they've said it's going to be roughly, roughly 50%, but, you know, that's okay. <sighs> Who knows? Yeah. The, the second part is then is that we have a rule that says we can only use so many engines before taking an engine penalty. You've now added more racing to this. So does that mean everybody gets another engine or two engines? Or what, what, what's going on with the engine supply? Did anybody talk to Erda about this? Because I'm sure that they've got something to say about that. Because they're managing the teams from the team's portion of it all. So you have that. The next thing is is points. Are, are you paying full points? Are you paying half points? Are there any points at all, you know, for this race? I, I'm assuming there's going to have to be some. My question... I can tell you. I, oh, they have print, that answer? Okay. I've, I've, right. got a print, I've got a print out here. So the headline bit of news on the point score, well, two things actually. So the points that they score in the sprint races won't count towards a rider's like career total. So when you review the stats, they'll have their points and then there'll be another column which covers their sprint race points. So 
I mean, that's a bit odd, I suppose, in a way, but it also, I suppose, it doesn't overinflate the points that people are scoring under this new system. So does that mean that the points in the sprint race count for nothing? That, that's a good question. All I can tell you is that people will score points th- from first through to ninth, not down to 15th. So again, for the people that are further back in the pack of, say, 20, 22 bikes, you know, what incentive is there to push, you, you know, given the risks that are involved? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are just some of the things you that quickly jumped to mind. My other issue then is tire allotment. Are you changing it? Is Michelin going to bring more tires? Who's going to pay for that cost? Is that just the teams? I mean, Michelin isn't going to simply, does Michelin give everybody one extra set because they're running a sprint race? I mean, wow, this is just one of those things that just jumps off the page at me. Like I, I, then, you know, the next thing about it is, are you going to use the finishing results of the sprint race a la Formula One to help decide how the grid is formed? So if they don't do that, then what, again, what are you racing for? Now, if you told me there's no points, but hey, guess what? If you qualified poorly and you started, let's pick something, you started fourth on the grid and you raced your way to second the sprint race and you were able to then start second in the grid for Sunday's main event, there's something to race for. I think that's just this whole thing just smacks to me of, well, we need to put the best bikes on the track for another race just so people will come and show up or turn on the TV and watch it. And I don't like that idea that that's why we're doing it. And, you know, Quattro has come out and said he doesn't like it. I think Salish said it was stupid. I think Paul said it was stupid. Marquez is like, ah, it's a great. Well, that's the racer <laughs> and that kid because he's not going to care one iota about whether he breaks his body in a sprint race or not. You know, it's just there's so many loose ends that, again, if you were going to do this. And by the way, in the fan survey, who voted for sprint races? Well, quite. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where this has come from. And. I mean, you you have to assume, or I'm at least I am assuming that the the teams, because Hervé Pontaral, who's the head of the teams association, Erta was part of the the three man press conference that announced this on what Thursday or Friday, whenever. Oh uh, yeah. Was. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the riders not to have been consulted in any way, shape, or form is beyond weird to me. I, I mean, it's a massive, massive change in the format of a weekend so not to have involved them in the discussion around that it just seems quite extraordinary to me i mean i like i say i sort of caveat this with the point that i think dorna quite clearly have to try to do something to reinvigorate the interest in the sport i mean let's not forget it, it can't be a coincidence that this has happened in two years or less than two years after valentino rossi retired that's clearly had a big effect on viewership well, I mean, that's my view. It must have had an effect. It had a massive effect, right? Rossi transcended the sport. You know, people who didn't even know MotoGP knew Valentino Rossi from either things that he did on television or from his accolades that he got. I mean, he he transcended sport. Again, it has hurt MotoGP that he has left. It was going to happen, and then you did not have a good exit strategy plan for Rossi. I'm not going to blame Rossi for leaving, and I'm not going to blame Rossi for leaving the way that he did. But you are Carmelo Espelita. You are in charge of this show. 
You have to have a strategy for what's going to happen next. You couldn't, the Rossi train and the money that it brought was not going to be there forever. And you had to find something else. The other problem is that Mark Marquez has been sitting on the sidelines for two years, Mm -hmm. roughly, because of his injuries that he's received. Now, Mark is not the personality of Rossi, but it would be easier to to promote Marquez and all the crazy radical writing that he did or does, or maybe we'll do again and showing that is incredible. Some of the saves that he has is incredible. That brings fans in. If there's not people there, you know, you're watching that, then you're not going to have this, this group. I mean, the British GP at Silverstone was poorly attended and there obviously is, how do I put this? At least for the U.S., there's many indicators that are indicating that the U.S. is going to go into a recession, which means there's not the free flow of money around. I think the I'm not I don't I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be one, but I think the world may be heading for a worldwide recession as well. I know things in the U.K. are not all rosy and whatnot with the Brexit and everything. So there's obviously those issues there which is all going to be a drain on everybody's pocketbook. And there isn't going to be the discretionary spending to look to, to spend on tickets to go see a motorcycle race. Yeah, Jim, I, one thing I didn't mention when we were talking about Silverstone was what you've just mentioned, which was the unbelievably poor attendance across the weekend. Now, I think in fairness, I think that might have been a bit of an outlier as we had just in the UK had the uh, the female Football World Cup, which of course the England team won so that will have diverted a lot of people's time attention and money in and around that event we also had the Commonwealth uh, Games going on around the same time and quite frankly the Silverstone MotoGP is a very very expensive weekend I mean there's no getting away from it you know somebody that I was chatting to on the Friday made the very salient point that it costs more to park at Silverstone for the weekend than it does to attend a BSB weekend you know, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, the, the weekend ticket for BSB is less than it costs to park at Silverstone. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. And, you know, that must turn people away. But I think, and again, I, I sort of think I understand what Dorna are trying to address. And that is in the post-Rossi, sort of post-partial Marquez era. And OK, we know he's coming back, but I think the glory years of Mark Marquez are probably behind him now. You know, I just think there's there's not enough needle in the in MotoGP. There's there's not a, a kind of a rivalry with a bit of edge to it, and I think that's what we need. Everybody's too friendly, you know. And I think what the what the Formula One fraternity have done quite effectively is kind of sort of presented the sport with that sort of personality thing going on a bit better. I mean, the Drive to Survive series, personally, I didn't particularly like it, and I think the re- most recent couple of seasons have been quite quite poor, quite turgid, really, in the way that they've been presented. But you can't argue against the figures that it's generated. And, you know, the the crowd was sparse. You know, there were more Rossi caps than any other rider at Silverstone this year. And he's been retired for a year, you know. So where's the interest going to come from? That's really the problem that Dorna are facing. So I think trying to bring the sprint race in is just a way to try and shake things up a little bit. And I kind of commend them for that. But 
as always, they don't seem to be able to. Uh, I know we don't want to sort of get an explicit tag in terms of our rating on iTunes and the other platforms, but they really couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery, Dorna. It seems to me because you know how badly do they manage messaging? It's just staggeringly bad. Yeah, you need to hire a media company to help you understand how to disseminate the material. Yeah, you know, I think we've opined how bad. MotoGP Unlimited was the behind the scenes deal you know I get the mm. fact that initially it wasn't subtitled everyone was speaking Spanish and no one could I couldn't I don't speak Spanish could get what was going on okay so you subtitled it and that's fine but to me the biggest thing that's missing is there's no commentary voice over that explains to you what's happening in between the scenes and you get lost yeah, these guys have a great personality and it's really cool to see that, but you're not promoting it in the way. And like why you never went and got Dave Neal who did the faster movies to help you reach out to the audience is still missing. And who knows if it was me and I'm Dorna, I would not have MotoGP have a sprint race, but I'll tell you who would have a sprint race. And that'd be Moto3 because those boys would put on a show on a Saturday afternoon that would be totally worth waiting for. It would give them more track time. It gives the young guys more time to ride. It's going to be less expensive than trying to run MotoGP bikes for some distance. And I think people would enjoy that. So that's my two cents. You could sort of see the sprint race format come into the other two categories, I suppose, ultimately, if it's successful. But, you know, I mean, picking up on something that you mentioned earlier on, clearly when it comes to things like engine allocation and tire allocation and stuff, well... Yeah, they're bringing a sprint race in, but they're kicking out FP4, for example. So I suppose they might argue that, you know, bikes will be turning the same number of laps potentially or there or thereabouts. It's just what they're doing is different. I think the concern for me really is more in and around, are people going to push that hard? Because the main feature race is still the the race on the Sunday. And yeah, I still have this little kind of lingering doubt that the sprint race kind of devalues the main race to some extent and asking riders to, you know, race 40 races a season, which is effectively what's going to happen. In fact, slightly more than that. And that, you know, it's a big ask for the riders and presumably that's why they didn't bother telling them because they probably knew there'd be so much pushback. They, you know, and there's, this has reinvigorated the recent talk around things like a riders union coming in, you, you know, to push, to push back on some of this stuff because uh, there were several riders that were, quite vocally against it. I mean, Aleisha Spargro, as you said, Jim, was by far and away the most vocal when the news broke. A day or two later, um, when one of the journalists asked him about it, he kind of said, oh, I've got a bad foot. I've got to go to physio, so I can't talk about my opinions on the sprint race anymore. So in other words, he had a bit of a gagging order put on him by the powers that be to say, hey, this is happening. Get with the programme, pal. Stop moaning about it and stop bad-mouthing us to the media. So, you know... That's the way these big sporting organisations work, isn't it, Jim? I mean, it's uh, kind of put up or, or go away, I suppose. But I, it just it's left a bit of a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, I think. Yeah. One last thing I would like to think about is, have you noticed how Quattro looks after a race? How Leish looks after a race? How these guys are drained. Mm. And I mean both mentally and physically they are drained 
they they are whipped. And I'm wondering from the idea of a safety standpoint, and I don't want to be health and safety and run all over everybody here on this one, but you're asking a lot of a person, especially if you're going to run hard, full out on a Saturday with the idea of like, there's not going to be the need for a tire preservation or conservation, man, that's going to be a lot of effort and a lot of brain power that these guys have then got to rest, relax and try to rebuild again for the next, you know, race on the, on that Sunday, which is going to be, you know, the long race. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that's going to affect these guys because I mean, wow, these guys are already training to the maximum. They're already riding to the maximum. And I don't think there's a lot left in there, in them. So I, I think we'll just need to take a look at and see what happens. I guess it'll be a little bit like the halo device in, you know, uh, Formula One and then, you know, that trickled down to other series. You, you know, it was an aberration to start off with to the purists, and but then it becomes normal. And I guess the sprint race format will be the same and riders will adapt their routines, you know, their tra- training regimes and so on to adapt to a slightly different format in the weekend so i kind of you know i, I kind of get that but I've, i was listening to another podcast uh earlier today and certainly somebody like um toby moody for example he was saying why couldn't they as an attempt to sort of just shake things up a little bit and to potentially bring in a different crowd you know get away from perhaps having every race on a sunday you, you know we've had this thing in the past where in Qatar they've had to run the race because of weather on a Monday night for example so you could have shaken things up by doing a few different things which might draw in people that couldn't watch races on a Sunday for example and for me the biggest thing that they could do to improve the show would be to get rid of shapeshifters uh, and to try and cut back on the aero a little bit which is not having a good effect in my opinion on the quality of the racing uh, and if you have good quality racing, you know, I would point to World Superbike and British Superbike as good evidence for this. You know, you will get fan engagement back again. Uh, and MotoGP is, oh, I, well, I hesitate to say it's becoming a bit of a bore fest, but, you know, the race on Sunday was not a classic. And I, I can't think of too many classic races we've had this season. And again, you've got to kind of look at the correlation between certain types of technologies starting to creep in and the quality of the racing. And I think, you know, it would be better to address some of those things before, you know, making massive shakeups like this, but you know, it's going to happen. So let's see, let's see how it goes. I'm going to try to keep an open mind. Yeah, we have to, I mean, it's happening whether we like it or not. So, I mean, all we can do is comment on, on how it goes, I suppose, and see what the listeners think. Well, let's move on in the news because we're still yeah. got a lot of news to cover and we haven't gone through, but one topic uh, the next thing in MotoGP is that Tech 3 is to become the official Gas Gas MotoGP team for 2023. Uh, well, they're just KTM's just rebranding the bike to make it a Gas Gas instead of it being a KTM, a la what they do in Moto3. Uh, I wondered this when they first said that KTM was going to be their partner. I'm like, you had Husqvarna as a brand. I'm like, why didn't you just make that a Husqvarna in MotoGP uh, right from the get-go? It doesn't make a lot of sense mm. at first. And I think this is just, it's just their marketing team. I mean, so what? It's still a KTM. I think we all know it's a KTM. But it, I, I I struggle to understand why Gas Gas versus Husky, because KTM does make a street bike, the RC16, I think they call it. 
So mm. you could race, you could ride that bike on the street. There isn't necessarily a Husky version of that that I'm aware of. I could be wrong, but they do have like a supermoto bike that you ride on the street. So I, I see more of a correlation if you would call it a Husqvar- team Husqvarna as opposed to calling it team gas gas, which I not sure at all if there is a road version anything gas gas as far as i know when i was in texas at the races this year everything gas gas had was an off-road bike it's a marketing deal and gas gas as a brand is very very prevalent and popular in spain so i think this is a very much of a marketing exercise and this is a well-trodden path with the ktm group as you say in the off-road sector where they rebrand basically ktm motocross bikes as gas gases in certain sectors as well so this is just yeah it's, it's a marketing exercise for me the slightly more interesting aspect of this and i don't actually know whether this is the case or not but it sounds as if the tech three team is going to be bought out and absorbed into the ktm operation as a full satellite of ktm now hmm. so i don't know if it's going to be called tech three gas gas next year i, I mean Hopefully somebody can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but it sounded as if, yeah, it's becoming part of the actual KTM business as part of this move, having been, K- you know, Tectoire originally, and more recently it's kind of become Englishized, I suppose, as Tech 3, but um, it's been a team in the paddock for, golly, since the 90s, if not before, probably, certainly the 90s. I mean, I remember Shinya Nakano and Olivier Jack hammering around on the uh, 250 tech three bikes back in the late 90s that would have been probably so yeah i'd be interesting to know and we'll obviously find out in the fullness of time quite what that relationship will be but that was kind of the bigger bit of underlying news of that announcement which i think has slightly gone under the radar perhaps perhaps but we know paul sparger will be riding for them that's guaranteed but the owner of the second seat there's still in doubt Rumors swirling that KTM are redoubling their efforts and chasing a signature from Miguel Oliveira. I'm not so sure that's going to happen, but now it's looking more likely than it did previously. Well, yeah, I mean, he had pretty flatly turned the move to Tech 3 down, hadn't he, a few weeks back? And then there was the talk of him going to Grassini. That has gone cold, that particular move. And then there was the talk of him lining up at the RNF squad on the Aprilia. But, I mean, Miguel Oliveira, I feel a little bit for him in the sense that, you know, he's a four-time Grand Prix winner. I mean, there are not that many people on the grid that can have that claim. And yet he seems to be kind of left standing up when the music stops a little bit. But he has said that he didn't want to go to a satellite squad. But the RNF squad is a satellite squad. I mean, they're not running 2023 bikes next year. Um, They'll be on 2022 Aprilias, which is not a bad position to be in of course but so i think probably ktm are just looking to open up the checkbook a little bit and see if they can keep him on board but i suspect part of his negotiation with them is what level of crew support he's going to get and whether or not he can take some of his team from the current works ktm squad across to let's call it the gas gas squad by way of kind of works level support because i'm sure he's not bothered that much about the money he wants to be able to win on the bike, and that's about the crew, isn't it, Jim, really, as much as the equipment. I agree with that one. It looks like that Remy Gardner and Darren Bender are out of MotoGP in 2023. That's a shame. I think Remy needs at least another year for it, but 
that is yeah. not the opinion of most, apparently. Now, we don't know where Raul Fernandez, who has had an, I would say, awful, horrible, terrible season, is going. But he is strongly linked to the RNF Aprilia. The word now is, and this is from motorsport.com, that Fernandez has now been released or has negotiated his release from his KTM contract, which means that we're supposed to hear by Mazzano that he is signed to RNF Aprilia. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of an injustice to be this one, Jim. But I know Raul Fernandez is a singular talent, but he's been outperformed by both Darren Binder and his teammate, Remy Gardner, this year. And Pitt Barra did actually say over the course of the Red Bull Ring weekend that they had sat down at the Hereth round, which was, golly, when was that? That was back in April, May time, I think. And Raul Fernandez and his entourage and team had informed KTM, if you please, that they would not be riding in that team next year. So he kind of released himself from the contract and evidently, as I've read, took quite a big pay cut in order to get himself out of that contract with KTM. So obviously he's got somewhere that he's going and it can only really be the RNF squad, can't it? Because there aren't really any other any other berths really for him to go to that I can think of. Yeah. Uh, question, question for you is mm. if if Remy's out of Tech 3 and let's assume that Oliveira doesn't sign for a second, does Augusto Fernandez get that seat? Uh, well, if I was in Hervé Pontreal's position and Pitt Barra, who I guess are the guys that have the primary say-so on that, I would keep Remy on the other gas-gas seat for sure. I mean, I think he's had quite a good year. He had a shaky start and was a bit um gobby and vocal at his displeasure about one or two things but i think since he got a bit of a telling off from Pontreal over that i think his actually his results have been much much better and he has outperformed his teammate i mean he scored more points than him so i mean it's there in black and white so i think i with the possible exception of Ayagura, I don't really think anybody's coming up for Moto2 next year. And I certainly don't think Remy Gardner, who, let's not forget, is the reigning Moto2 world champion still. I think he thoroughly deserves a second season in MotoGP and preferably on the same bike and the same team. So if the Oliveira thing doesn't happen, I very much hope that Gardner's going to retain that seat. Yeah. Oh, I guess we're just going to find out in time. Yeah. Juan Mir suffered a monster high side uh, in the race, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But he has damaged bones and ligaments in his right ankle. So we'll segue that into some other news that has a prof- may have a profound effect on who we see riding what, when, and where, and why. Uh, the rumor mill has that the Marquez brothers have split from their longtime manager in 1999-125cc champion Emilio Alzamora. That's interesting if they have left that. I wonder mm. why they think they need to, but okay. Hey, everybody takes he a wasn't, change. He wasn't at Silverstone and he wasn't at the Red Bull ring and supposedly because he had COVID-19, but it's been claimed that that's a bit of a cover story and that he's not there because there's either been a falling out or a separation, which is not official. And this has been broken by an Italian or Spanish, probably journalist, I think, a bit of, of good repute, not somebody that's prone to putting out you know, fake news as the modern term would have it. So, yeah, I mean, 
Mark Marquez has been with Al Zamora for 19 to 20 years now. So it might just be that it's coming to an end. And, you know, Mark Marquez is, what is he now, Jim? 29, 30 years old, something like that. So, I mean, he probably do- doesn't need that level of oversight. And I think Al Zamora is quite well known for being quite a tough character. So maybe they've just fallen out. I mean, who who knows? But it's just a little snippet of news that I saw thought worth putting in there. Mm. And the final MotoGP news that we have is Mark Marquez got to his end of August evaluation from the surgery he had on his arm right after Mugello. The the results of the CAT scan and uh, they did some other tests. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but they say that there's now total union of the bone. So the bone Mm -hmm. is now healed and he is capable of now adding weights and weight training to his regime. And he's allowed to ride a motorcycle again. I'm thinking he's going to maybe try to start doing a little motocross uh, slash enduro slash supermoto kind of a thing. But there's this persistent rumor that he will be on a Honda at the Mazano test on September 6th, that there's a goal to get there. Even if he just puts in 15, 20 laps over the course of the test, or he, he does three laps at a time or something like that, that, He's going to be there just so that he can understand the direction that the motorcycle needs to go and try to get Honda to move in the direction uh, so that they can build something. Because the time frame that I understand, as I understand it, is that you take the data that you gather from the Mizano test, you build up a prototype machine, whether it's a different frame, forks, whatever, you build that up in a time between. Mazano and the end of year test in Valencia and you rolled that bike out. So mm. I think we're going to have to keep an eye on this space and see what happens with Mark and whether he's actually going to be there at that time. Certainly in the press, Alberto Pooch is very much insisting that that's what he would like to happen. And I know you were very sort of vehemently opposed to any suggestion that he'd be on a bike this year, Jim, just from the point of view of if he has another crash this close to that corrective surgery, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it's a risky in the extreme as far as I'm concerned, but given where Honda are at the moment, and we'll come on to that, I guess, when we talk about very briefly about the race, because there's not a great deal to talk about, but certainly Honda is one talking point that's worth touching on as a result of, well, not just not just Austria. I mean, Silverstone, just about every race this year since Thailand, really. Uh, not Thailand, sorry, Indonesia. It's a high-risk strategy for, for all parties concerned, is, is my view on it. But, I mean, yeah, they're lost at the minute. Yeah. I, I have warmed up to the idea of him being on a bike in Valencia, just because mm-hmm. now we've got a report that says that the bone and everything is okay. So, all right, let's build our arm strength back up. Because if you've seen pictures of his right arm, it is. There's mm-hmm. a scar that runs essentially from like where your collar, if you there's like a point between your collarbone and your shoulder that you can feel and your feel if you kind of like push, push in there. It's from like there all the way down to past his elbow where they've opened that up and yeah. gone through it. it gnarly. It's gnarly. And if you, if he just takes his time, gets on a motocross bike, gets some feel back, does some supermoto, perhaps maybe does a track day or two on an RCV 213 street bike mm-hmm. here and there to get himself more fit. 
and then shows up and does Valencia, I can see that. That's Valencia's November. We're in we're in let's call it September. That's three months away, right? Um, so yeah. I think that there's there's quite the amount of time that you could get stronger, better, and feel feel good about it. But Jim, uh, the, the problem with Marquez is that he's a rider that has done in the past the things that he's done by finding the limit and he's found the limit more often than not by crashing. So, uh, and that is not a well-sorted bike at the moment. So, I mean, is he going to, one of two things happens, either he pushes to the limit and he crashes a couple of times to find out what the problems with the bike and where those limits are, or he's just not prepared to push that hard at the moment, which would be totally understandable. And therefore what value is his input at this point? So, I mean, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place on that one, I think. Yeah, but you know what? That's what the big brains at Honda get paid for, not us. All right, Rich, let's talk uh, World Superbike, man. Why don't you tell us what's going on there? Not a great deal to talk about, uh, Jim. So in World Superbike, there hasn't been any racing lately. There's They're on their kind of enforced summer break again. But there was a test session at Barcelona uh, just last week, I believe. Now, very unusually, uh, Toprak uh, Razgatioglu had quite a bad high side, and he's not a guy that crashes very often, actually, despite his crazy antics on a bike. Um, he is not a crasher, but he did go down quite hard. I don't know if it was caught on camera in terms of exactly how it came to pass, but anyway, he came down pretty hard and damaged his elbow quite badly. Said to be a nasty injury that he's got, but luckily for him, World Superbike doesn't resume, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, at Magny Core until the second weekend in September. So he's got a bit of time to recover and he is due to take part in that race. Uh, but the sort of the more upsetting part of that, I suppose from a selfish point of view with regards to BSB, was that Toprak and I think Andrea Locatelli, his teammate, were going to be guesting this weekend at Cadwell Park at the BSB round. And Toprak certainly was due to be doing some laps around Cadwell and was very much looking forward to doing the jump on the on, on the mountain. So it looks as if that isn't going to happen. He'll be busy uh, convalescing and just getting that injury uh, a bit better. So that's the uh, the top rack news. The other little bit of news that emerged was that uh, uh, Xavi Vierge has re-signed with Honda in the World Superbike squad. So he'll be alongside uh, Ike Lequona again next year. There was some talk about him potentially going, I think, to one of the BMW teams. But obviously that isn't going to happen now. And just on BSB, unfortunately, because I was on holiday, I haven't had a chance yet to watch the races from Thruxton, although I will certainly will do at some stage. But I don't really have much to say about that at this point in time. I'll try and catch up on that during the coming week. Um, but then we've got Cadwell Park, which is due to run this coming weekend. So we're recording this on the 24th of August. So Cadwell will run across the in the UK. We've got uh, what we call a bank holiday weekend. So the races will be on Sunday and Monday. So we'll uh, catch up on that next time we talk, Jim. Yep, sounds good. Well, let's move to some Moto American news. I, again, I yeah. was at Pittsburgh this weekend. So let's cover the news yep. and I'll cover the racing there kind of quickly. But okay. uh, Jeep. GP1 has re- it reports that Petrucci has been offered one year Suzuki for the Masana around happening September 2 through 4. So that should be interesting wow. to see if Petrucci takes that up. I think he wow. does. But the other fact about Petrucci here in Moto America is 
that motorsport.com ran an article that stated that Petrucci was sent to America to win the championship. Okay, that's the goal of any rider and team. You want to win the championship. However, there was a little carrot supposedly attached to this, and that being that if Petrucci won the championship here in America, he would receive as his reward the coveted second Ducati seat in Ducati's World Superbike team. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Well, I think, uh, you know, a lot of eyebrows were raised when he left the MotoGP paddock and didn't go straight into that team in World Superbike. I mean, that certainly caught me off guard. I think that's where most people assumed that he would land. So, yeah, um, I think he would probably be a lot happier in World Superbike than he's been for most of the season in Moto America for reasons that we have discussed. And perhaps, I, again, I, d- I haven't seen any of the racing at, um, was it Pittsburgh? Uh, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. that Jim. Um, so you'll you'll tell us all about that in terms of how he got along, but um, I think it's fair to say that he's found this year fairly tough going on the American tracks. Yeah, he he definitely has. Uh, oh, here's a good rumor for everybody. I picked this one up while I was walking around at the the races in Pittsburgh. There are rumors, strong rumors, that some BSB team or teams are looking to expand their operation and come to moto america i'm very excited jim by the by this one i'm gonna yeah. do some do some digging where i can and we'll see if there's some uh, substance to this rumor nothing more for us to say on it I, I guess at this point in time but i can think of one or two teams in the pit lane that perhaps would have aspirations in that direction and potentially the financial means with which to do it so yeah, watch this space, everybody. Yeah, we'll say that. So let's talk a little bit about the weekend for it. Uh, with Moto America, some things. It was a very nice weekend. We we took the camper over. Uh, we were there for the weekend. It was very nice. Uh, the spaces were very small, so we were very crowded on top of one another. But again, you meet the people that are nearby, and everybody's awesome and great. So, you know, shout mm-hmm. out to T- Rob and Tina. If you guys are listening, they were our... Uh, people right next to us so they were our neighbors for the weekend yeah. um so they were very very nice i got to meet jeremy friend of the show uh we had a great time saturday afternoon he actually had bought a ride on the back of the two-seat superbike with Chris Allrich, which if you watch that mm. happen it's pretty wild because Allrich is not playing around when he's moving <laughs> that bike so that was that was interesting so that was fun we talked about that talked about racing had a good time so thank you for that jeremy uh what, what else was happening oh the some of the things I liked about it is that it's very open paddock, right? You can go anywhere. You can walk up to everything. You can talk to the riders, talk to the crews. It's very open. It's it's very family-friendly kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I wish the I wish I wish the factories would come back to the teams to, or come back to the series. I should say. I my reference point is always the AMA Nationals from like the late nineties. Cause those were the last ones that I went to mm-hmm. um, Wayne has done, I would say a really good job of providing entertainment and value for the money. So for us, there's three of us that went. So we divided up the camping by three and each of us bought a three day pass. So basically our portion of it was like $173 for three days of racing and practice that and camping. Mm. that's 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 not bad money that's not value for the money that you're putting out so i'll give it to the guys at moto america for 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 that um the one thing that i did seem to be rather odd 
was we got caught in the first superbike race with several or uh, several crashes that caused red flags during that race. And it seemed to me that the big reason for it was a lack of corner workers or a lack of people there to help move bikes or just that the fact that the bikes wound up in places that you didn't think a motorcycle may, may, may get to. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it was very weird because there was, there was quite a few crashes that happened at turn seven, which is a downhill off camber kind of a corner. There were no corner workers stationed to the outside of that turn, which is weird because a lot of people were going off there. Now, I don't know why they weren't there, but it just seemed like there were things that could have been done so that they didn't have to red flag those races. That's interesting, um, Jim, because um, earlier on today when I was walking my dog, as I do every day across the fields, I was listening to Greg's Garage Pod and Jason Pridmore made exactly that same point. In fact, it was a what you might call an impassioned plea, plea out to people to volunteer to corner work. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think they just can't get the volunteers to yeah. do it. Uh, and these people are volunteers. I mean, this is not paid work. You have to do it out of the goodness and of your heart and the love of the sport. So clearly that was a problem. And if you have observed it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Jason Pridmore making that exact same point on the pod. No, uh, for reference, I've today. not, I don't, I've not listened to that episode from mm. Greg's podcast, so I had no idea that Jason uh, would had said that. So, yeah, rather interesting. Yeah, no, very interesting to see that exactly the same thing being said. Just on your point, Jim, and I always bang on about this. And again, just briefly stepping back to what we were talking about with regards to what Dorner are up to with regards to fan engagement in MotoGP. Well. You've just mentioned Moto America. It's an open paddock. You can talk to the riders. I mean, people like Jake Gagne are very, very famously sort of open to talking to fans and signing stuff, just getting involved. And the BSB paddock is definitely like that. I think the World Superbike paddock, perhaps not to quite the same extent, but it's still an open, fairly open paddock with good access to the riders. And MotoGP is like an ivory tower. I mean, they just need to take those walls down and, and get get the fans more involved with the riders or or actually i should say that the other way around get the riders involved with the fans because you know that's a big barrier i think to people's engagement and interest in following personalities and that's what sport's all about right you follow your favorite rider and you know there are not that many favorite riders in motor gp at the minute it strikes me that's part of the problem and it's great to see what you know as you say what wayne's doing and i think moto america has a particular problem because unlike in bsb where i could quite easily go to let's say two-thirds of the races around the country and we've touched on this in the past but geographically you know I, for most of those races i won't have to drive for more than two to three hours well for moto america i guess you're trying to deal with a demographic that's completely separate for every single race because you're not going to get that many fans going to more than one race in Moto America, I would assume, unless you've got bags of money and loads of time. Yeah, it would be tough. I mean, if you were, if you were in lived in Virginia, the state of Virginia, you could easily get to VIR. You could easily get to New Jersey, and if you wanted to, you could maybe stretch it and go to Pittsburgh. You know, as a frame of reference, I live in Dayton, near Dayton, Ohio. And for me and my buddies to drive over to Pittsburgh where the race was, was a four and a half hour drive. Uh, we're mm. going to, we're going to Barber and for us to go to Barber, that's eight hours of driving to get to Barber. So 
you mm-hmm. have to make a pretty big commitment to to all that. But let's talk about the racing real quick from um, Moto America. And the first Superbike race, it was interrupted by two red flags. It became a five-lap dash on used tires because I did not know this, but it is up to the discretion of Dunlap as to whether you are allowed to change tires or not. And mm. Dunlap said no at this particular <laughs> race. I was So everybody was on their worn shag tires for the final restart, which was interesting. But Jake Gagne won. He beat uh, Petrucci with Matthew Schultz being on the podium. Now, Schultz was riding injured. He had a severely bruised, I don't want to say bruised wrist. He had something wrong with his wrist. He was wearing a brace for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did finish third, which is pretty amazing. I think that, he bust that wrist in um, in Brainerd, didn't he, yeah, Jim? Yeah, that is correct. Yes, he did. I, like, I don't know if it was truly busted or just tore up. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. He had a brace yeah. on. But uh, what was interesting is that this changed the gap from 13 points to a eight point deficit. So Gagne was now down by eight points going to the second, going to the second super bike race on Sunday. Uh, the Sunday race took place and it had rained a little bit on and off. And in the wet, Danilo Producci looked really fast and everybody else was, but they did run the race in dry as is in dry conditions. And basically Gagne kind of rode off on everybody again to take a double but he got help from Matthew Schultz, who wound up getting by Petrucci uh, about half distance, and he would Schultz would finish second, Petrucci would be third. So now there is a one-point gap between Gagne and Danilo Petrucci with two rounds and four races left, uh, that being New Jersey, I think, in a week uh, from now, and then Barbara is the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of September where the championship will be decided. And uh, I think it's going to be a barn burner when we get down there real yeah. quick. I do want to mention the super sport races because Rocco Landers won race one. Uh, so he's, he had a really great showing in Brainerd. He carried that momentum in and he was able to beat Josh Heron again on the Ducati, but Josh did turn the tables in the second race where he did beat Rocco in the second race uh, to, you know, there's nobody really going to beat Josh for this championship, but it was more of a pride thing because that was going to be three races on the trot that Josh didn't win. And, uh, you know, Josh did put his head down and Rocco's making him work hard to get that victory. So applaud wow. it to the, to those guys. And a shout out to Josh Hayes, who's still out there turning laps and being oh, fast. Okay. I mean, that guy, I mean, he's been around forever. Yeah. Yes. Josh has been out there forever with that. That is the end of the news, but I would like to tell you something exciting folks. Uh, we here at Motopod have teamed up with uh, Robert Hess and his group Rally for Vets. What they do, they are an organization that pro- helps to provide service animals to U.S. veterans who are suffering from PTSD. And the way that they do it is they run out of track and they have a track day cross where they you bring your car and you one time you get like a lap around the track. Uh, it's timed and they figure out, you know, who wins the event and whatnot. Um, so it's not really racing and it's not motorcycles, but I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys probably have a fast car sitting in the garage because I do. So I'm assuming you guys are a lot like me. So you get a track chance to go out, do a track, do the track thing. If you're a fan of the show, you can do that too. Their next event is at Summit Point Raceway and it is October the 22nd. It is the Top Dog Cross event and Right out now, we're going to listen to Mr. Robert Hess tell us a little bit more about it. Take it away, Robert. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Hess, and I lead a veteran charity that is hosting a new track series supporting veterans coping with PTSD. The format is a track cross, like a time trial, but with just one car running on the track at a time. Our next event is the Top Dog Championships, scheduled for Summit Point's Shenandoah Circuit on October 22nd. Registration is open on motorsportreg.com. Just search for Top Dog Track Cross. I hope you join us and finish as a Devon Top Dog Champion while you help our veteran community. Okay, thanks for that, Robert. Really do appreciate it. Remember, folks, October 22nd, Summit Point Raceway, and you can go to motosportreg.com to sign up for the event. And you can also go to Rally for Vets. That's R-A-L-L-Y, the number four vets.com to get more information. And I'm hoping to have Robert on uh, the show with an interview because I think that the cause is uh, worth it. Yeah, great organization. All right, Rich. Let's finally get to the racing because we've yeah, been on this for long last. <laughs> almost, almost 40 minutes or more just talking about news and everything else that's been going on. Uh, let's start at the Moto3 part of it. Yeah. Uh, I d uh, qualifying, I don't think there was anything that was really all uh, there that we didn't expect. But uh, we did not expect Daniel Hagardo to come through and get a pole position. He did pimp Sasaki for the pole. Anchi was fast and on the front row. Then it was Rossi doing another really great qualifying session. But let's see yeah. what would happen to him in the race. Uh, and then follow, falling out, we had uh, Fagia Marrera, and uh, that would be the first two rows on uh, Moto3 qualifying. When it came down to the race, we had to remember that Sasaki was going to have to take a double long lap penalty. So what was going to happen? Uh, anybody's guess when he was going to take it. Anybody's guess didn't know when he was going to do them, when he was going to do both of them, but it was going to, that was going to put a bit of spice into this race. When it started, Sasaki went to the front with everybody. Anchi went to the front on a tear. It was on lap three that I believe that Sasaki dove for the, dove to the uh long lap uh for his first one yeah. so he lost about three seconds on the leaders at that point from around there on you overcooked the chicane uh as everybody was trying to take advantage of it uh munoz was in there garcia or uh not uh, garcia but uh daniel Hogarda, who jumped up early from that pole position was leading and him and Anchi were fighting for it Anchi rode off through it and then, of course we had to investigate Anchi for this it's like, okay, he runs off under his own mistake. He goes through the gravel. He comes back in. He comes back in in the exact same place that he went in the chicane. Did he gain an advantage to it? No. And that's eventually what everybody agreed to. Thank you for not making it any harder than that. <laughs> and I think from that point for me, Rich, I started on a, I started on a Sasaki watch. Uh, you know, yeah. what was he going to do? Because I think he rode like another two laps and then rode into the uh, pit lane or to the long lap penalty again and he was at the tail end of the train now the second time he went through the long lead lap, long lap penalty he only lost about a second and a half because the guys out front start to battle each other and of course when you battle you're not going as fast as you possibly can because you're not having the optimum line but sasaki put his head down after that and ripped off personal best personal best fastest lap fastest lap fastest lap over and over and over again to the point where he basically rode back through the pack it was yeah. phenomenal to watch a guy on a Moto3 bike 
run back to the pack. He was sort of there the whole time with uh, Suzuki, who was the lone Honda among a horde of KTM and KTM clones, which surprised me because Fazia, I would have thought, would have been quick or as quick as Sasaki on the bike. But that just never seemed to pan out or happen. But everybody had a turn at the front, it seemed like, from Marrera to Ethan Guevara to uh, Garcia. They were all there. And Garcia led for a good chunk of the middle portion of the race, I think. Typical Motor3 race, Jim, really. I mean, yeah. again, you can't really track it lap to lap, can you? But no. the old Dennis Foggia definitely turned up, didn't he? Oh, Just yeah. Disappeared mm-hmm. without trace. Completely. And then, you know, it was like, well, suddenly, ba-bam, Sasaki's out front again. And I thought for sure he would have cooked that tire somewhere along the way, but mm. I, he never did. And he went on to win the race, which I thought was phenomenal. It was a Japanese one, too, as Suzuki finished there. And I think the last time that happened was, ugh, they told us, but I forgot to write it down, Rich. Oh Yeah, I, I couldn't tell. I mean, it, it's going to be a while, isn't it? Since oh, it was. 2001 uh, it was somewhere in 2001 uh, yeah it's, it's a long long time long, ago long time ago for that but the new kid on the block Munoz who did have a turn to lead a little bit showed that he's got the stuff as he finished third he's on the podium I think that's two on the trot because I think he was on the podium in Silverstone as well yeah he's been battling at the front ever since he arrived on the scene and as you kind of corrected me a few shows ago he would have been with us from the get-go this season but he wasn't old enough to take part he just hit 16 around a third of the way into the season. So, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, he is really something quite special, isn't he, this this young young kid? So he's only going to get stronger from here on, I think. Yeah, I don't think he will be riding the same bike next year. No, I'm pretty sure not, no. <laughs> um, it depends on, you know, it depends on who gets sort of pushed aside. And given the fact that Juan Masia is not doing very good at all, I think it's highly likely that, uh, Munoz may wind up on that factory KTM bike. Mm. If not there, um, I hate to say it because you're a Brit. He's a Brit, always a Scott, but I think John McPhee may not be back with um, Biagi's team. And that'll well, be another place. He can't be, Jim. He's, he's going to hit the age limit uh, at the end of the season. So oh, he's, he's still got the age limit? Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's 28. No, mm. no, no. He's 28. So he's done at the, at the end of this year. I mean, I doubt really on the strength of his performance which has again been rather injury stricken it's true but you rather suspect that John McPhee might end up in World Supersport or something next year because I'm not quite sure there's going to be a berth for him in Moto2 given that there are not many riders going up from Moto2 to to MotoGP so I think it's going to be a little bit of a kind of stalemate really in terms of places to go but no I'm pretty sure I'm correct in saying that this is the last season he can compete with the age limit, he's a little bit like that guy. Um, uh, was it Aaron Vasquez or somebody like that? Somebody yeah, something years like that. ago, he was a great, great rider on the small bike, but just hit the age limit and had to leave, and you never heard of him again. But just in terms of the top sort of three, three or, or top one through till six, let's say, I mean, that is not a list that you would have expected for all of those people to finish. In fact, the only person who didn't finish the race, quite unbelievably was Carlos Tatai. Apart from him, everybody finished the race, Jim, which, you know, when was the last time there was one non-finisher in a Moto3 race, mm-hmm. given how frantic it is? I can't remember when, um, if any, you know, quite honestly. I seriously doubt it's ever happened, probably. 
and may may not have. Uh, but it is well, interesting. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, all, all I was going to say was that from now on, I'm not going to call it the long lap penalty anymore. It's now, as far as I'm concerned, known as the long lap inconvenience, because if you can take two of the things and still win the race, it ain't a penalty. I'm sorry. It just isn't. Right. I think we I I think we beat that horse before with Quattraro. Uh, but you know, one of the things that did help Sasaki was the fact that they have that new chicane. Um, so that negated a lot of the draft uh advantage that people would have in pulling away but the boys rode well all of them rode well just to kind of give every perspective of where we were sasaki suzuki munoz anchu would be fourth and then garcia morera guevara holgado and mcphee and round out the top 10 was toba now john mcphee if you're listening come to moto america bud <laughs> <laughs> with the, one that, of the bsb teams <laughs> uh, yes with one of the bsb teams so that was i thought it was an interesting race uh not a stellar race but it did shake up the points a little bit uh sergio garcia is still leading the championship but he is only leading by five points over guevara Fagia is now you know 49 points i think behind the leaders it is going to be between the gas gas boys uh, I don't see anybody else challenging them. And I don't know how this is going to work out because those two were the two gas gas boys, I should say, were putting out elbows mm-hmm. and they were not taking. Uh, how do I put this? There obviously is no team orders because they were racing each other very hard through uh, the whole race. And it is going to be a struggle to beat each other, although if I had to pick, I think I would pick Garcia over Guevara, but I'm not sure how this is going to pan out. Yeah, it's it's tough to really separate them, isn't it, at the moment? I mean, they've both got their own strengths, haven't they? But I think it's quite clearly it's between those two, because if you look how far back Fodger is now, it's quite a big gap. Mm, yeah, there's it's 50 points, and I would not bet against Faja, except for the fact that he's showed no consistent form again. And we know the Honda is a bike that does not seem to be as effective as the KTMs are this year. But I thought we could expect more out of Faja. I, you know, the problem is I think that there's no movement of people up from Moto2 to MotoGP. So there's no empty seats at Moto2 for some of these guys to go to. Like I don't know where mm. Fagia would go in Moto Two, right? I don't, I don't see a place. I mean, I, the, the, no, anything's possible because I mean, I hear Delaporta's ride is pretty much, you know, he's pretty much going to be let go. But so, mm. so Fagia could possibly go there. I'm not, I'm not saying he's not. This is like a generalized statement, like there, because not everybody's moving up. You know, what? Where are some of these guys who we know are really fast going to go? Like. If Garcia wins the world championship, is he still going to come back and do Moto Three? I mean, he's he's young enough to stay there. That's that's not the issue. It's just where is he going to go? It's like, well, Fazia has been there long enough. He's twenty one, I think. Uh, if I got that right, he'll be like twenty two. Yeah, I'd need to check on that. He's been, I mean, he's one of these names that's been around a long time, isn't he? A bit like uh, Jaime Masia, but yeah. you know, they, they're they risking getting stuck in the category if they're not careful yeah. and suffering the same fight as John McPhee, really, you know, by just always being a Moto3 rider, a bit like Fanati. I mean, he's had some troubled excursions into Moto2 and it's never really worked out, but 
I do wonder, Jim, I mean, clearly nothing major is going to happen in MotoGP, but there are a few riders that might be feeling a bit vulnerable in Moto2 at the minute, given that there are some supreme talents in Moto3 who really do need to come up. So if I was, let's say, for example, and I don't wish to be unkind picking on individuals, but let's say a Joe Roberts or a Dalla Porter, particularly, you know, even a Cam Bobier, you know, these guys, you know, I think are perhaps putting themselves at danger, really, by not turning in the results on the Sunday when there are some very fast young kids looking to come up and currently not that many seats for them to take. So it might force a few of the Moto2 two teams into making some tough decisions, I think. Well, you also have to add in that Remy Gardner and Darren Bender are probably going to be looking for a Moto2 ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it might be a bit of a wholesale shakeup in Moto2. And we know there haven't been that many announcements about Moto2. So, you know, that tends to be more of a sort of through the winter kind of a deal, doesn't it? So... Yeah, I think there's some big announcements possibly that might start to come out of that because there is a log jam at the minute in terms of people coming up and, as you say, a couple of people that need to come down. Hmm. Well, one last question I have for you from Moto3 is, oh, what's up with Anchu? Do you think he's going to win a race? He's been so close, but he just can't seem to put it together. Yeah, I don't know with him. You just kind of get the impression that if he could just win one race, then it would be sort of floodgates open time but i don't know if it's his temperament or he's just a bit still a bit too feisty i think and he just perhaps i don't know just overdoes it early in the race and he needs to be a bit more stealthy but it's easy to say and it's obviously part of part and parcel of temperament but that's where a good team should be stepping in now because again he's a fairly seasoned campaigner in moto three isn't he now and he's been running at the front a lot so he really ought to be getting to the stage where he can bag a win now so I don't know what the answer to your question is, though. I mean, he should have won multiple races by now. Yeah, that's why I, I think the same thing. I think he should have yeah. won multiple races and just just hasn't. So not sure where that is. Let's move on to Moto2. We had qualifying on the Saturday, and I agree I would take pole. He, the Japanese rider sort of just showed up at the uh, last moment to take the pole position. He did that ahead of uh, Alonso Lopez on the Cora, which he's ever since Lopez has been put on that bike, he has made that bike look phenomenal. He has been in the hunt yeah. all the time. Uh, our good friend Augusto Fernandez was third, and then it was Jake Dixon, Shamkat Chancha, and Pedro Acosta finishing uh, sixth in qualifying, coming back from the broken femur that he had. So it was good to see Acosta back. He had an extra two weeks. So he had seven weeks for his femur to heal. And you could tell there was just a little bit of rust with Acosta uh, during that. Now, the race was a bit of a different story here. Uh, Ayagura had the lead early on. Dixon kind of rode to the front but took it. But Ayagura would just simply do the fight back at each and every turn. And eventually, Ayagura would go on to win the race. I there wasn't much going on in this race, Rich, as far as no, I could say. It, see, it wasn't the most captivating race you'll ever watch, I think it's fair to say. But there were one or two things that took place in the race. So, again, definitely not doing a lap by lap kind of analysis on this one. But from my point of view, I thought Jake Dixon put in a really good performance because he was up front early on and then kind of looked as if he had a problem develop and he did drop back I think at one point to 
sixth, possibly even as low as seventh position, and you thought, oh dear, you know, this looks bad now. He's probably going to go backwards through the pack. So I don't really exactly know what the problem was, um, but he kind of just settled himself down in a way that I think it would be fair to say Jake has not been famous for in the past. He's tended to think to be a bit guilty of overreacting sometimes and chucking it up the road, but he kind of settled in worked through whatever the problem was, the bike came back to him, perhaps as the fuel burned off or whatever. And so he just sort of stealthily made his way back up. Now this coincided with a, a little bit of an underwhelming weekend from Augusto Fernandez, who was solid, but unspectacular. And yep. had his returning teammate in Pedro Acosta, who's, you know, let's be honest, still limping around the paddock with a, having broken the biggest bone in the human body. So that is a, that was a major injury that he had and anybody that looked at him out of the last turn on the last lap knew that he was putting everything on the line to try and get on the podium because he was fully sideways but um no jakeson uh jake dixon rather managed to mug acosta on the last couple of turns on the last lap to pick up a third place so that was a great recovery ride from dixon uh, a great return ride from acosta and yeah, a solid but unspectacular ride with points and championship in mind from Augusto Fernandez. But the really sort of interesting part of the race really was that the uh, the Honda Team Asia uh, boys just ran away with it at the front. And certainly for about the last five laps, uh, Chonkiat Chantra was being shown the position two OK message on his pit board. In other words, stay where you are, pal. You know, don't mess this guy's championship up with this crazy move. So what did he do? On the last turn, or the last, or the penultimate turn, I think it was, he stuffed it up the inside of Agura in a fairly kind of rash and hopeful move. But luckily for both of them, it didn't go sour, and Agura was able to get the cut back. A little bit reminiscent of the very famous Davizioso Marquez last corner at the Red Bull Ring of a few seasons ago. Um, so all was well that ended well on that one, with uh, Agura taking the win. Chantra second and Dixon rounding out the podium. So, yeah, not a terribly captivating race, I think it would be fair to say, but um, it had its moments. Mm, definitely. Uh, you know, good to see Acosta back. I thought to have fourth place yeah. after a seven-week break, uh, and especially breaking your femur was amazing. Uh, yeah. Of note, it was interesting that Bobier came home in 13th and then Roberts came home in 14th, so the U.S. riders were you know, in the back of the pack, which I think we've kind of uh, unfortunately come to expect ex unless it's in Texas or at Puerto Mayo or a track where they uh, exceed. And like you said, we talked about there that those seats might be tantalizingly not available to them. Unfortunately, mm. maybe next year with mm. everything we've talked about, but Ayagura winning did have a profound effect on this championship because Vietti did not finish. Uh, so yeah, we, should no, no, we haven't mentioned that, but yeah, his his season is starting to unravel. Unravel, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good word because Ayagura now leads this championship by one point over Augusto Fernandez. We have a championship battle on here now, people, and I really yeah. thought that Augusto Fernandez was going to run off with this, but apparently Ayagura has different ideas, and I would love to see Ayagura win this title. I really would. I think it would be fascinating because then that really forces Honda's hand in what they're going to do with Nakagami. This, this, yeah. this kid seems to be the deal. 
Um, I think he is probably as good as Dejiro Kato at this time. So that is, you know, I, I think you have a have a kid who could conceivably win on a Honda as long as the bike is halfway decent. I mean, if Marquez can make it at least rideable, then this kid's probably got a shot at it. So I, I think there's only good things to come from him. But as we look at the rest of the points, uh, third place is Vietti. So he has fallen from, you know, the lead to absolutely being in third. Now, Aaron Kinnett is still enjoying fourth and Joe Roberts uh, and Tony Arbolino, Jake Dixon with some great rides has moved himself to seventh. Schroeder and Chomkat Trantra and then Acosta still stays in the top 10 having uh, finished in fourth place. Yeah. And that's Moto2, guys. So we'll get into MotoGP uh, qualifying. That we Jim, yes, I sir. just say just, there were a few tweets flying around uh, following the races on Sunday, a few of which were to do with, you know, the great performance over the weekend by the Japanese riders. And so I put out a tweet, which a few people hopefully saw, which was just expressing the ironic situation that as Japan suddenly has, let's say, three or four quality riders in the lower divisions coming up, it coincides very unhappily from their point of view with the Japanese factories of MotoGP being either totally lost or or barren out altogether. Which yeah. strikes me as highly ironic because you've got Sasaki, and to be fair to him, although he, we've been quite critical of him, certainly in the early part of this season and certainly previous seasons, but you've got Tatsuki Suzuki, who's had a good few races on the bounce now. Obviously, you've got Ayagira in Moto2, but you've also got the likes of Yamanaka, who's having a pretty good season in Moto3 as well, and there's people like Kaito Teiru. I mean, I think all of these guys are Japanese. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly Sasaki, Suzuki, and Agura, in terms of talents coming up through, as, you know, let, let's... Let's be honest. I mean, since the sad demise of Daijiro Kato, as you just mentioned, Jim, Japan has been searching for that sort of talismanic rider to come up and represent the rising sun, haven't they? Obviously, the hope was that um, Tomizawa might do it. Obviously, we lost him, unfortunately, in a nasty accident. And Akigami has shown flashes of brilliance, but has always kind of dropped the ball at the moment when he was in the front of the goal. So, you know, they need one of these riders to come up and it's just pitiful, really, I suppose, that, you know, it's at the same time that Honda are in the wilderness, Suzuki are going home and taking all their toys with them and Yamaha are reducing their involvement. So, bad timing. Yeah, it's definitely not what you would have expected especially for the Japanese to do that. But I don't know if you saw this, but there was Marquez had his press conference or whatever. And he was talking and he said that we need to change the direction of the project. And again, you know, you, yeah. you, you have to understand. And he clarified some of it. What he's talking about is that the team needs to work differently because the European teams mm -hmm. are working differently and they're getting the results and the Japanese teams aren't. And, you know, he's made it, quite clear hey i'm the guy who rides the bike i'm not the person who can uh go at this and make things happen but we need to do something different i mean i think marquez sees what's going on 
as we as you've rightly pointed out, Rich, the the, the European teams have stolen the march mm-hmm. from an aerodynamic, uh, electronic, not electronic, but uh, shape shifting. Those kind of things have all been from the European side of things, and they've all been very successful. And I don't think that the Japanese have have been as revolutionary as the European Brotherhood have. It's more evolutionary is where they go. Although I admit yeah. to Honda building this bike this year is a complete departure in philosophy from what they have had. So it remains to be seen what they do next year. But I do find it all. I do find all that rather interesting as you as you make note of all that it's, as well. It's also interesting to note as well, Jim, that as testing, in-season testing, well, not just in-season, out-of-season testing as well, has been effectively removed. Because what do we have now? Four or five test days a year where the main factory riders, uh, you know, can take play, take, take part. Yeah, uh, Barcelona, Mazzano are the two that come to my mind right off the top of my And a few days in the off-season, you know, so it's virtually nothing. And, you know, I think it's, again, I don't think I'm going to be causing too much offence to anybody by saying that the Japanese are not famous for wanting to take big risks in terms of development parts in the public forum of a race weekend, whereas I think the Europeans are much more willing to do that. And the regulations of the sport around, you know, the absence of testing now force factories to have to do that and uh you know sometimes you fall on your sword and sometimes you come out with a, a winning concept and i think I, I suspect that's part of what marquez was getting at which is that they need to be much more willing to take risks and not to worry quite so much about you know losing face and losing you know the whole pride sort of aspect which is obviously very prevalent in the japanese culture and japan is very isolated as we were talking about which doesn't help them we were talking about that a couple of episodes ago i think so yeah i mean the japanese manufacturers just need to step things up i mean yamaha have done pretty good things and we're going to talk about quattro in a minute aren't we because that is not the bike that we were expecting to see no definitely not so let's go to qualifying for moto for moto gp i the the qualifying went down i i think we got what we expected out of qualifying the ducatis were quick they they dominated the first four spots. Bastianini took pole ahead of Benyaya. Although Benyaya uh or sorry, Bastianini took the pole ahead of Benyaya. Although I have to admit Bastianini just threw down a hell of a lap to take it. He really did. I mean, that was a pretty phenomenal lap. Uh Miller then Martin and then Quattraro who was fifth and I'm shocked that Quattraro was actually there. You know, detractors will say the chicane has helped Quattraro because it's another breaking point and it's a couple of turns. Uh, naysayers say it doesn't matter because the Ducatis accelerate. So what's the difference, guys? Uh, you know, who knows? But it was going to be interesting to see how things were going to fill out as the race were to progress. Now, Lisa Spargaro must be said, he was in the first qualifying session. That was a real shock that he was there, especially considering how good the Aprilia has been all year. But it appeared as though he was having trouble getting, getting it to stop and to turn at this particular circuit. He did yeoman's work to get out of the first session. And he did at one point was on pole, but he was going to get swamped by the horde of a horde of Ducatis. He had basically thrown his best shot at it and his best shot would wind up being uh, a, um, a, uh, where did he lay? A ninth place position. I mean, he was even pimped by his teammate 
So uh, definitely not what we're expecting. You know, this championship is starting to widen out and um, we need it. We need it. Uh, we need to get to where Alesha is very close to Quattro at the start and can run with Quattro to see what we're really going to get out of this. He's, he's got to start beating Quattro is, is the key element of that. In the race, the Ducati's got off to the front start. Uh, some people changed and went to a medium rear on the starting grid. I can't remember who all switched there at the last minute. I think Quattro did, but I'm not 100% on that one. But Benyaya basically had the lead, uh, and he kind of maintained that lead the whole time. And the fight was sort of between Miller and Marini and Martin and Zarco. It was all the Ducatis kind of fighting for that, who was going to be the best Ducati. Except somebody had an issue with that, and that person was Fabio Quattraro, <laughs> as he probably rode one of the best races I think I have ever seen Quattraro run. Because Quattraro took that Yamaha all the way to second place. I think it was the best race by far, Jim. I I I I think I think I agree. I agree with you. Let me say that. But Quattraro is really something special. Yeah. If you if you it's amazing that he didn't really have a stellar Moto 2 career, but that doesn't mean that you that you can't be successful in Moto GP. We've seen that. He is just on form that no one can even remotely come close to duplicating with a Yamaha. Yeah. There's no way Morbidelli can ride that motorcycle in any way close to what Quattraro does. And Quattraro did, I think the Ducatis did sort of use up their tires a little bit. And that, you know, allowed Quattraro to get close. But the move Quattraro put on Jack Miller around the outside at the chicane at 2A to get to third place was absolutely, or to get to second place, I think, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I thought for sure Quattraro was closing, and I thought, well, yeah, Quattraro will get to fourth. It's still going to be an all-Ducati podium. Nope, Quattraro just did not give up and rode his heart out to get that second place. I mean, again, one of the best rides I've seen Quattraro ride of his entire MotoGP career to get to that second place. And one of the one of the moves of the season, if not the move of the season that I can think of, I mean, that was millimetre and millisecond perfect, the way he executed that overtake on Miller. Because that was a high-risk move as well, Jim, wasn't it? Because, I mean, they could have so easily both gone down if that had been just slightly mistimed or slightly misjudged. Bearing in mind what Quattraro had happened on his pass with Aspargro in Assen as well, where he was forcing the issue because he had to, because he's overcoming some deficits with that bike. So, no, it was a stunning, stunning pass and a stunning ride. I mean, I'm not the biggest Quattraro fan in the world, but even I can see that he's hands hands above, hands and everything else above everybody else at the moment. Yeah, I, I'm warming up to Quattraro. I mean, he's not my favourite, but I do have a lot of respect for how he's riding. And that speaks volumes. I mean, you know, I'm not whining about the bike. This is what they gave me, and I'm maximising it to the nth degree and that that's that's how you win that's how you win championships and i i and as you've identified nobody else on a yamaha is even on the same 
planet as he is with that bike. I mean, it's embarrassing for everybody else, and particularly for Morbidelli, who I do sort of feel a bit sorry for, but it's hard to understand what's happened to Morbidelli. I know he's had the knee injury, and we don't know if that's still a serious impediment to his progress, but it's, it's kind of, for me, it's hard to see how Yamaha can keep him on that bike next year, really, because, I mean, he's nowhere. Who are they going to get to? Who are they going to get to be on that bike next year? That's well, good, I mean, I, I still wonder if there's a chance that Raúl Fernandez might end up there because that's where he wanted to be, you know, last year, wasn't it? Before the KTM thing came off. But I don't know. I don't know. But I don't really see how they can afford to keep a rider that's that far away on the second bike. I agree. Uh, my my curiosity is we've not still not heard anything about Juan Mir getting on a Honda. Yeah. Is he? Is he? angling towards the yamaha seat i mean i would think that you'd want to suzuki's gone you're gonna get on another inline four obviously quattro can win on that bike and you have enough talent i think that you could maybe ride that bike as close to it as possible as quattro i mean i think you'd have a great chance at it i guess yeah. just to say it that way well i put it this way jim i mean Looking at form, if you had the choice of the Repsol Honda or the Monster Yamaha, which one would you go for? I'd say I'd have to go for the Yamaha. You'd have to. You'd have to. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, the lack of an announcement. Okay, we now know that Paul Espargaro is off to gas gas, as it's going to be called. Not right. that that's come as any great shock to anybody, but still no announcement on Mir, which is curious unless they're sort of saving it up for one of the Spanish rounds. But I don't know. I mean, the way Mir's season's going, I mean, he probably just wants to see the back end of this year and look for something much, much more hopeful. And I don't think he'd be finding much solace in the idea of a Repsol Honda ride next year at the moment. Yeah, I I, I mean, look, Renz is going to go to the LCR Honda, right? So yep. we know that. I, somehow I'm thinking now that the I think the reason it's my gut tells me that the reason that everything is quiet on the Juan Mir front is that he's trying to figure out how to get out of the letter of intent that he signed to be mm. on the Honda. That's kind of what I think is going on and why it's not being said. Now, that to that point, that opens up. I mean, do you put Iagura on the factory bike? I mean, I just, yeah. I don't know. I again, this is for minds that are greater than ours to try to decide. But if he wins that championship, you got to think that there's a you know. Let's face it, I agree. It was pretty good on a Moto Three bike, but he's been a whole hell of a lot better on the bigger Moto Two bike, and it is his second year in the class. Yeah, I don't know. I just think jumping on that Honda at the moment is you know. I don't think there's going to be a long queue of people looking to jump on that bike at the moment i mean okay it's a motor gp bike it's repsol honda but i know we haven't quite sort of finished talking out the race yet but let's just quickly <laughs> touch on honda i mean they are seriously close to getting concessions that's what sort of a hole they're in you know it's shocking yeah. I, I i probably have this wrong but i'm sure i heard or read a couple of days ago that they are now on the longest podium drought since Certainly the 90s, if not the late 80s. I would think you would be correct. Not possibly even back to when they were running the NR, you know, the Never Ready bike. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, uh, as it was famously dubbed, which just Honda could never get it to work. You know, you wonder how long it is before 
well, I mean, as you said a minute ago, Marquez has sort of hinted at the fact that the project needs to change as much as the bike needs to change because they're lacking the tools to develop it in the right direction. So, yeah, but it was just a horror show. I mean, both Repsol Hondas were beaten by the LCRs, I think. Oh, well, Renakagami crashed, but I think Alex Marquez finished ahead of uh, Aspargaro and... Um, he did. Uh, Stefan Bradle. So, yeah, um, it's, it's shocking, really, what's going on with Honda at the minute. You know, I mean, if Honda gets concessions, is that really a bad thing for them? Well, no, I mean, it, if you set aside the whole issue around pride and what a catastrophic kind of failure that is for them to be in that position... They need the concessions. I mean, there's no two ways about it. They need the extra engines. They need the extra testing. They need everything they can possibly get at the moment. And they most particularly need Mark Marquez, I suppose. Yeah. But even that might lead them up a false path of hope in the sense that, you know, they're kind of in the position that they're in because they had a bike that nobody else could ride but him. So, you know, do they really want to end up that blind alley again? I mean, arguably they don't, but I think they'd probably take that rather than where they are at the moment. I agree. I think they would. Um, I, I, I equate it to like sports here in the U S it's people. I follow hockey, I'm a big hockey fan. When your team is that bad, you want them to be the baddest of the possible bad. Cause you want to have the best chance of winning the lottery and picking first overall in the draft and hopefully find a player. That's going to be a franchise player to change your thing, change yeah. your destiny. And it's like, I see concessions. It's the same thing here. Honda needs concessions because they need to be able to, to garner more track time with their main riders to develop a motorcycle that they can then win on. And, uh, you know, I, I think as much as that is going to hurt Honda, I think they're willing to accept it to be back winning again. I think they know now that Mark Marquez is not the magic bullet that they can rely on, mm. you know? So, I... Well, them getting a podium this year is entirely out of their hands because that is not going to happen. And I think if they don't score a podium this in the remainder of this season, then they will get concessions next year. Which, if that coincides with, as you say, potentially Ayagura jumping onto a, let's say, a, a factory bike, whether it's in the LCR squad or in the Repsol squad, as well as Mark Marquez coming back somewhere close to reasonable fitness, then... Okay, those two things plus concessions might just help to drag them out of where they are. But yeah, God, do they need all the help they can get at the minute? Mm, they do. You know what? I don't think we ever wrapped up where everybody's finished in the race, but we should. Banyaya would win Cotteraro, uh, Miller, Marini, Zarco, Aleish, Brad Bender with a good ride up to seventh. You know, Sunday man yep. that Brad Bender is. I think he was hoping for rain. I'm pretty sure he had a rain dance going on before the start of that. <laughs> Because yeah. there were bar- black clouds. Then uh, Basecki ninth, and then Jorge Martin was tenth. I think he had a Martin had a low side that he didn't pick it back up and started again because he was battling with Miller for the uh, for a podium spot early on. Mir, as we said in the news, had that tremendous high side on the first lap at turn three. That was just whoo, he flew. Uh, he was out there. That was like an old 500 CCT stroker, wasn't it? It was, oof, that was, it, was it was similar, very similar to Mark Marquez's, uh, what was the new circuit that we went to? Oh, Indonesia. Indonesia yeah. crash. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty brutal. Well, let's quickly look at the championship here. Obviously, Quattararo still leads. He's on 200 points. Alesh is on 168, so he's 32 behind. It's basically status quo there. 
nobody gained, nobody lost really in that respect. But, you know, Alicia has got to do something here. We are going to Mazzano in two weeks time. Uh, you got to think that Alicia should go well there on the Aprilia. I, they do I, a lot of testing there. Yeah, they do. I think that if, if Alicia wants to, to take this championship to the final races of the year, he needs a win in Mazzano. I think nothing less than a win is required at this time. Yeah. And I'm not trying to slight Aprilia and what they've done because it's been amazing. I'm not trying to slight Aleish either. It's just Quattararo is riding in the form of his life and it's going to take something magical to beat him to the championship. Yeah, and I think a lot of shoulders will have dropped with that second place that Quattararo got last weekend because if he can do that there, then that's an uphill struggle for everybody. And yes, Banyaya has won three on the bounce, but he's a long way back. And if Quattro is going to be getting seconds and thirds, and he just can't close that gap. And as you say, Aspargaro, uh, with a bit of help from Vinales, you would hope, who kind of went a bit AWOL again this weekend. Yeah, he, they need to start outscoring him. And um, I mean, I, in fairness, Aspargaro said all along that this was not going to be a good track for the Aprilia. But as you say, Jim, Mizano should be, uh, Aragon definitely will be a track that you would expect the Aprilia and Aspargo to go well at. And then I think it's a little bit open book in terms of some of the flyaways because we haven't been to some of those races for two or three seasons or certainly a couple of seasons. So it's going to be a little bit of a level playing field, I suppose, in terms of recent knowledge and setup. But I, I, I start, we can, I think we can start to think that Quattro's not got it in the bag, but I think um, they can start the early parts of the engraving on the cup in terms of who's going to get the championship this year. I think so. I'm looking forward to Phillip Island because I don't think MotoGP bikes have raced at the island with all of the arrow that's on them now. Certainly not this level of advanced arrow. No, definitely, right. definitely not. No, I think that's going to be really telling. Yeah. So it's all... To- you know, anything can happen. Quattro needs one bit of bad luck, fall off, uh, heat the tire on the front, the Yamaha, anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, anything can happen. This is racing. And it's why we tune in. But I think we have rattled on enough for this show. There was a lot that we covered, a lot of news that took a lot of time. Uh, yeah. The racing wasn't quite as stellar. Plus, we wanted to go through some Moto America as well because that championships are heating up. If you can, go see a Moto America race. They're worth the time. To, to go see from my opinion uh, yeah. if you just stop in for a sunday afternoon you know still worth definitely it. and anybody like me who has the uh eurosport coverage the eurosport player i guess most people will know this but you can pick up after a couple of days i think it is all of the moto america rounds on the eurosport service um so that's where i've been watching them and i have been yeah, watching them fairly avidly this season because it's been great having petrucci in there and as we said in the last episode, um, we, we're looking forward to Jake Gagne and his team turning up at Portimao in a few weeks' time. Um, really, really, really looking forward to seeing how that goes. So there's a lot of interest. And again, as you said earlier on, Jim, America, super, super close in terms of the points and definitely all to play for with some big prizes for people if, if the Petrucci thing and, you know, knocking um, Michael Ruben Rinaldi out of the second Works Ducati seat, if that's still on the table, then... Yeah, he's got lots to go for. So it's going to be a great last couple of rounds. I think it will be. All righty, guys, that's the show. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Remember to check out Rally for Vets. 
uh, and their track day. And with all that, I want you to be sure that y'all ride safe. Thanks, everyone.